I am a sloth. Scott <laughs> is a cheater. That's not an understatement when he says he writes all the time. He writes scripts quicker than I read them. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. In 2013, Christian Bale and director Scott Cooper marked their first collaboration with Into the Furnace, a gritty revenge drama that positioned Bale opposite Casey Affleck and Woody Harrelson, not to mention one of the last performances from Sam Shepard. It was an important moment for Cooper, who had made his feature directorial debut in 2009 with the award-winning indie Crazy Heart. And now he was keen to show his range as a writer and a director. For Bale, Into the Furnace stoked his already incredible momentum. Adding to a list of recent achievements that included an Oscar for Best Actor for The Fighter and the conclusion of his role as Batman in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. In addition to these individual successes, Into the Furnace cultivated a personal friendship and creative partnership between Cooper and Bale that would bring them together a few years later for Cooper's fourth film, Hostiles, a revisionist Western that starred Bale as a U.S. Army captain tasked with escorting an ailing Cheyenne chief to his tribal home in Montana, and one of my favorite modern Westerns. Now, Cooper and Bale are back with their third collaboration, The Pale Blue Eye. Set at West Point in 1830, the film follows world-weary detective Augustus Landor, played by Christian Bale, who is hired to discreetly investigate the gruesome murder of a cadet. Impeded by the cadet's code of silence, Landor enlists one of their own to help unravel the case, a young man the world would later come to know as Edgar Allan Poe. I'm here today with Cooper and Bale to dive into the making of this film and to dig into their creative process and their friendship behind the scenes. I feel like I've been waiting nearly my whole career to to talk to both of you, actually. I apologize ahead of time for the disappointment. (laughs) That's okay. But Christian, yes, I have been chasing you when I worked at Vanity Fair for two decades. But I loved that you just always said no. It it made me want to get you even more. But I love you, the, your whole relationship with press and whatnot. But that's for another conversation and not for this podcast. But Scott knows how I feel about him and his movies. And I think I really love you most as an actor when you're working with Scott. I just love the way you guys delve into this oh, wow. gray area and these characters on the margins of society. I rewatched Out of the Furnace and I rewatched Hostels just because I had to. Oh, Why well. not? In addition to obviously Pale Blue Eyes. So, Scott, you did your first movie, right? Crazy uh, Heart. Crazy yes. Heart, of course. You won Jeff Bridges' his Oscar as along with well, the song. For, you know. <laughs> Let's say Jeff Bridges. Won. He did. Well, he did. I just happened to be there film. And then you decide this book, right? Louis Bayard's book, just that yeah. was your next project that you wanted to do. And you stuck with it, obviously, because you've done a lot between Crazy Heart and now Pale Blue Eye. Yes. So what was it about this book and this story? Much like Edgar Allan Poe, I spent my formative years in Virginia. And my father taught English. And literature was always around our house. And Poe, in particular, because of his being a Virginian. My father went to the University of Virginia and lived next door to the room in which Poe lived, which is now a uh, sort of a museum on the lawn at UVA. And I was steeped in Poe from a young age. So after I finished Crazy Heart, my father just happened to have read this novel. And he said, hey, you know, I've just read something 
with Poe at the center of it as a detective that I think is riveting. And I think you'll love it. He wasn't thinking in terms of a film. He was just thinking in terms of uh, as a reader, because I'm, I'm kind of an inveterate reader. And uh, I read it and I thought, my God, how clever is this, Louis Bayard, by placing uh, the man who has bequeathed to us the detective fiction and horror fiction to place him at the center of an investigation, the center of a, of a murder detective story. And uh, so just after Crazy Heart, I had a little bit of a uh, little bit of runway to, to kind of do what I wanted to do next. Uh, um, very thankful that uh, Elizabeth Gabler at Fox 2000 optioned this for me and Peter Chern. And then um, whether, you know, it's timing so often, um, who knows why things don't happen when you want them to. Um, I've now been more fortunate that they, they tend to, but then they didn't. Uh, the project languished. I went and made Out of the Furnace. I made Black Mass, um, Hostiles, and uh, a, a kind of a trauma film uh, called Antlers at Fox Searchlight. And Tyler Thompson, who's one of the producers uh, with whom I made Black Mass, came to me and he said, um, has there ever been anything that you've written that you would love to make? And I said, yes, but it's at Fox 2000 and the studio's now defunct. And he said, what is it? And I said, The Pale Blue Eye. Uh, fortunately for me, um, that was about 10 years, I think. Christian aged perfectly into uh, the lead part. Uh, he would have been uh, probably too young to play uh, Augustus Landor uh, when I wanted to make it and, and perhaps a little too uh, mature to play Poe. So things work out as they're meant to. And uh, I dusted off the script, I sent it to Christian, and thankfully, off we went. Stuff, I, no, I don't see you often with the glasses on. They, aren't they quite William Burroughs? Oh, wow, wow right? interesting. I was hmm. picturing shooting an apple off your head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, I can see Christian better. Yes, right, so I matured into a grumpy just, old bastard who wants nothing to do with people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's what you saw happen to me. It's perfect. <laughs> when you were writing, did you have Christian in mind for the role? I wrote Crazy Heart for Jeff Bridges specifically. Out of the Furnace for Christian. Hostiles for Christian. This, or the reimagining, getting into it thinking, my God, Christian's perfect age, perfect for this. My closest collaborator, closest pal. I hope he loves it. And, you know, but you can write something for someone doesn't mean they're going to do it. I send Christian plenty of scripts that he doesn't want to do, but he sees all my scripts first, I hate to say. So, Christian, what made you want to play Augustus? Like, what was it about this story and this this character? I think that there's a lot to be said for what is left unsaid. Um, but certainly with Landor, I liked this historical fiction. I liked this origin story of Poe and, and knew, was familiar with him as a symbol of the macabre and originator of detective stories, vague ideas. I mean, even his death is almost like a piece of performance art if it wasn't so tragic and he ultimately, you know, Obviously, because he was in someone else's clothes, right? 
Yeah, he did. He died Somebody else's clothes in the gutter. Yes, inflammation mumbling. of the brain. But they have no idea really why he died. I'm blanking on the word when it was the political thuggery where they would beat people, make them go m- vote multiple times. <laughs> How fitting. Cooping, it's, it's your name. Yeah, that was that was one of the theories as well. Fantastic, yes, of all days today yeah. <laughs> to be yes. talking about that. For our listeners, we are recording this conversation on November 8th. He actually went into the hospital on election day, just before he, four days before he died. Exactly right. That Well, that was the theory, wasn't it, that explains him being in someone else's clothes, was that he was forced to put them on and go vote multiple times, right? Suffering from mysterious hallucinations. But here's a yeah. man who left us with the right. ultimate mystery. How he and died. so, you know, the origin story of that and the, the hard-drinking man obsessed with the macabre that we came to know and seeing Landor as the engine that set Poe on his life course. The person who taught him a great deal was something of a father figure, but also in many ways, as anyone who you get close to was able to kind of break Poe's heart as well. They grew very close. And it is, you know, as Scott says, a a father-son story as much as it is. And that's the other thing with Landor. He's he's, uh, he's an 1830s... Hard-boiled detective, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and like I was saying, yes, yeah, somebody who has decided he wants nothing to do with people, he's seen too much of them his entire life, being a detective, um, resorting to violence himself to get confessions, etc. Uh, what did you call that, Scott? Gloveless interrogation. Yes. <laughs> um and uh, and then somebody though who who is actually finding himself not not being the teacher in a situation he appears to be he appears to be utterly in control in all the environments that he he puts himself in but in fact he is learning a great deal from the young poe who 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 when we first meet him would um, appear to be the very last person the land <laughs> respectful or learn anything from. It's such an interesting dynamic. And one of the parts that I really loved most about this film is like, and also enter Harry Melling, who's brilliant. Uh, But it was that relationship between the two men here and what as an audience member you were uncovering as they were kind of uncovering it. I love, I just love that. And I love the genre of, of detective, um, I mean, it did look cold as fuck wherever you guys were, and I saw. Oh, it was. <laughs> I Minus saw degrees on certain days. Minus four. And I saw the film uh, on the big screen in the Netflix theater uh, the first time I watched it, and it was those theaters are always cold with the AC on, and I was like freezing so watching the movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh my god, I was riveted watching watching that snow and the pines and the trees, everything. I was fully and absolutely beautiful cinematography. Beautiful. Beautiful. With, uh, with our pal, Massa. So I want to talk about Harry just a bit, because obviously you guys have done three films. Uh, this is your third film together. So you have your own, like, creative language that yeah, you sure. have developed over, you know, professionally working together and then also personally getting to know each other. Two questions here. What is that like when you're casting for Poe? Because obviously this is a critical role. 
uh, when did you know that that was the person? Like, what was that feeling? And then two, how did he, as an artist, fit into your dynamic of, you know, this long established shorthand that you have with each other? Well, one of the great things of having Christian as a partner on all of my films is uh, in terms of casting. You know, Christian's worked with a lot of actors. Um, I know Christian's process in terms of uh, some of the films that we've made are very difficult films to make, Um, meaning uh, weather, location, altitude, temperature, those sort of things. Not difficult, I love that, quite frankly, um, being in those kind of conditions. But not every actor would like that. Christian always sets the tone that it's gonna be tough, but we're gonna get through it, and there'll be no complaining. Christian's the first one on set, the last one to leave. That sounds like such joy, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's the truth. So in terms of, you, you, it's, you know, finding that alchemy is, is not easy. And, and I take casting very, very uh, uh, seriously. So Christian and I will, as we're doing all the, of our investigative text work with the script, well before we get to the set, uh, we talk obviously about casting. And I had seen Harry Melling in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the Coen Brothers anthology, in which he plays this limbless performer that Liam Neeson carries around the West spousing Shakespeare. And I was riveted. I thought it was one of the best performances I had seen and moved me in a, in a, in a very, very long time. And I turned Christian on to that. And of course, he loved Harry, uh, I think, immediately, he, not speaking for him. Um, but there were a lot of great actors who auditioned for this part, and and Harry auditioned, and uh, uh, I would send the audition tapes to Christian, and we would discuss them all. But Christian, what was your take on Harry? I was in um, quarantine when I you sent me Harry's tape, and I was going stir crazy, and it was a very appropriate time. So I was sitting and reading. Yeah, you know, Scott had been generous enough to. Uh, include me on on looking at many audition tapes and as you said very fine actors but when i saw harry's tape instantly he became the image that i i pictured as i was reading pale blue eye for the you know umpteenth time he just captured it you know he has these uh hypnotic eyes that are fascinating he was really uh exploring something interesting in the audition and i admired that because I've I've always hated auditions when I've been on that side of it, and and um, it was was very often unable to access anything interesting in an audition. However, got cast and things. I'm not certain, but uh, but I could see that he was transcending that, and um, and he he was he was really a, a very special individual, um, and uh, and uh, just became Poe in my mind. And I remember our first conversation when I spoke with Scott and we just said, he's it, right? That's it. Um, and after, after seeing that for tape, there really wasn't anybody else that uh, I imagined. And then working with him was a dream. He came prepared. He assimilated beautifully with the rest of the cast. You don't see any of his process. He's one of the sweetest, most gentlest people I've come across. I I thought he's the only person who could play this version of Edgar Allan Poe, because remember, before he became really obsessed with loss and death and drink, uh, he was warm, he was uh, witty, humorous, very southernly, 
was by all accounts a great companion. And I think Harry really captured that. And then as the film progresses and we get into some darker uh, psychological terrain, one, I hope, can see that the events in this film then lead him to become the writer he became. Mm -hmm. Even though this is a work of fiction, the themes that we're discussing in the film ultimately motivated him to become the writer that he became. And I think Harry captured that beautifully. And I think that while he has this great warmth, Harry really captured as well the seeds of his solitude, you know, to come because he was never accepted by the other cadets and even by Landor initially. Landor sort of observes him as though he's a freak in a cabinet and he laughs with him but at him as well, but then comes to discover um, that he's far more, that Poe is far more sincere uh, than, than anybody else. He's, he's, uh, he's crossing paths with. Harry's also in this very enviable position right now where he is incredibly experienced as an actor, but also is uh, not necessarily uh, familiar to a lot of the audience. So that's what a great place to be. Uh, that's a good point. You know what you're doing and you've been doing it for years, and that's very clear. But to the audience, you're nothing but the character. That's uh, that's the ideal. Yeah, that is a good point and, and very true. If you look at his, you think, oh, that was that guy. Oh, yeah, he, he's a very transformative actor. And we, we, we shaved his hairline and brought that back and removed his sideburns, which were in vogue. Uh, in 1830, so that he appeared more like the Poe that we're all... Uh, the way you said that, Scott, it sounded like you and I held Harry down. His hairline back to It's true. It's pretty shocking how remarkably he looks like the, the, the one image that we're, that we're familiar uh, of Poe um, a few days before his death. Yeah. Oh, he does. The relationship Landor has with with Poe is just delicious and layered and you're discovering it. But also all the senses are happening. The music. We kind of talked a little bit about the oh, cinematography. God, how fantastic that is. The, the how it's short, short, short. amazing. Right. So you're feeling all of it, which I loved that experience uh, for that two hours, just to feel that music and to feel the cold, see the cold and feel it. So let's talk a little bit about the music. It's exceptional and it and it's essential. Well, sometimes I'll send Christian ideas that might help him, whether it's ultimately going to be the composer or not, but ideas that might put him into a headspace or this is what I'm thinking about it. Yeah, you'll usually always send me music ahead of filming. Yeah, yeah. And I met with uh, some composers that I really, really admire and like. Um, Howard Shore, of course, uh, uh, is a legend. His, his work speaks for itself. And I thought this is a man who understands not only uh, the hearts of darkness and pathos, but warmth, um, a sense of humor when, when we need it. My, there isn't a lot of humor in my work, but uh, there, there's a bit in, in, in this, I think. It's accessible in, in that way. And Howard, I think, underlined that beautifully. Very dark humor. Yes. But his, but his Howard Shore's themes are so powerful and he builds upon them. And he had a theme for West Point. He had Landor's theme, a theme for Landor and, and Poe, or 
uh, Landor and someone who's quite important uh, in, in his life. Um, and he weaves, uh, he's, he's able to weave these together, Howard, in a way that, that you don't consciously think of as you're listening to it, but ultimately has uh, a very powerful and emotional effect uh, in total. Uh, uh, so that you aren't really uh, paying attention to it. He isn't, uh, I mean, uh, easy for me to say, I don't know if others feel this way, but, but much like Masanobu Takianagi with his photography or Stefania Cella with her production design or Kasia Willicke Mamone with her costumes, Howard Shore makes it feel as of a piece that you aren't uh, seeing the work. At least that was the idea, and he does it beautifully. Well, that's, uh, that's in keeping with everyone who you like to hire. That's in keeping with your... Uh, method as well. So, Christian, you first met Scott on Out of the Furnace. What is it about Scott as a as a director or collaborator that you responded to that has made you come back and have these experiences again and again in your life? As we just discussed, you know, as, as Scott was talking about Howard's approach and um, disappearing, you know, I like Scott's approach in that he does that. He's a true director in terms of having a very strong point of view, but being very collaborative at one and the same time. I work with Scott, but ultimately I work for Scott. I need to understand what it is he's looking for, and I will have um, plenty of suggestions, um, but ultimately I'm working for him, and uh, and I'm a, a means to, to achieve the vision that he has, and I enjoy Scott's visions. I also enjoy the fact that um, he uh, he doesn't make a mountain out of a molehill when he's working. We keep it simple. Um, it uh, flows very well. Um, we do have, by this point, a good lingua franca um, between us. But in honesty, I found that that developed incredibly quickly, um, just in like-mindedness. Um, when we first worked together on Out of the Furnace. Um, I like how uh, relentless Scott is in pursuing um, answers to questions. Uh, he is obsessed, and I, I, I like that. You Look, we all want to work with uh, people who are obsessed. I think in this profession, it's an essential element. And he, he is someone who becomes obsessed, and I uh, enjoy watching him work and being a part of uh uh his uh, his projects and i enjoy yeah I, I when i said to you I, I don't know what was it scott i guess it was about six months ago i said well you know you enjoy exploring the ethics of revenge and i wasn't certain at that point if if that was something where you know we don't we can never analyze ourselves as well as other people can we don't look in the mirror as much as uh, you know we're not studying ourselves are we uh, right oh, we can yeah, really describe our own eyes when other people yeah. can much better but uh, i wasn't i'm not certain if it was a surprise to you but it felt well, like it, it was. was it was very accurate i was thinking my god because so often people will come come to me after having seen my films and they and they ascribe so much meaning to things that maybe i didn't even have in mind when in, in making it which is wonderful isn't it i love that the audience owns it once they see it it's not yours it's not mine it's theirs afterwards he comes from, I'm not going to, you know, it's, it's private, but he comes from a, a r ridiculously engaging family steeped in American history and really quite Shakespearean in its experiences, as I've gone to know Scott and I've learned. 
<laughs> part of being a Virginian, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. An old Virginia family, yeah. A lot comes with that, Krista. And instead of going to therapy, I send it all to Christian first, and then we put it on the screen. <laughs> so how is that when you say no to a project? I don't remember ever saying no to Scott. <laughs> right. But but I'm very specific in what I send to Christian. I mean, look, uh, I've said this publicly on countless occasions that, you know, uh, he's the finest screen actor working. And I am so incredibly thankful to have that partnership to be able to write for someone. And Christian has great working relationships with other directors. Uh, David O. Russell, wonderful director. Um, uh, I happen to love uh, their last, all their collaborations, their last one in Amsterdam, I thought was fantastic. Uh, Adam McKay, Chris Nolan. But what's interesting about Christian, because he's, he's such a chameleon, is that we all get something different from Christian. And uh, I, I, you know, Christian has good relationships with all of these wonderful directors. Uh, Christian and I have um, a friendship outside of work in terms of families, travel together, spend a lot of time together. Uh, I, I see Christian more than probably anyone. Um, and then you can write for that. And we all are searching for something out of our actors that serves the story, that serves the character. But when you have someone like Christian who can take what's written on the page and then Jesus just takes it to places that you can only dream of. And he does that for David, Adam, Chris, and, and, uh, and me. And it's, it's just a pleasure to, to watch uh, because, you know, having been an actor with an unremarkable career, I tell you, man, when you're on the other side of that camera and you're watching Christian or Robert Duvall or Jeff Bridges or uh, you know, Timothy Spall, Jesse Plemons, I mean, whoever, Joel Edgerton, I mean, really, really great actors. It, 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 uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real skill and courageous in an artistic sense, um, I have to say, when you open yourself up and bear yourself like certainly Christian does for me. And let's not forget our mutual pal, Rory Cochran. Oh, boy. Rory. Rory. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. Oh, my God. His hey, last a scene in Hostel. Oh, my God. Oh, and yes, what about okay. the first scene? I get chills. Yeah. They took my yeah. guns, Joe. That mm -hmm. scene, I mean, let me tell you, Krista, it does not get... And when he get, gives him back his gun. Oh, and it does no not words. get any better than that. Yeah. I mean, Rory Cochran <laughs> is one of our great actors. Un yeah, he's brilliant. Some underappreciated, uh, remarkable actors, and, and we have a great time with him. Well, we were speaking of hostels, and I want to speak about all of your films, Scott, because what I respond to is you, all the worlds that you've created are so different but they are loaded with layers that are seen and unseen, that it is such a treat for a viewer to like kind of unpack that. And like you said, you know, no one film lands the same way on anybody else, right? You, you give it, the, it's the audience's movies. But the depth of these stories, whether it is something like, all right, pale blue eye, the world that you create. It's so precise, but yet freeing. Where does that come from? Like, where did, what was the, I mean, obviously your father was an English teacher. I imagine you were surrounded by yeah. books. Clearly you're, you're very, very smart. But like Christian said, there's an obsession and a drive. And that's yes. the difference between being well-read and a raconteur and actually getting and building these worlds. Where does that motivation come from? At a young age, I watched a lot of films. My father would take me to a local college and we would watch a lot of black and white films, a lot of uh, international films, foreign films. Um, and if you 
are experiencing things in your life, as many as all of us are, certainly now, um, when you go to the movies, you're able for two hours to set that aside and completely be immersed in a director's world and with wonderful actors. And for me, that was always kind of an escape from whatever reality was as a kid growing up. And the goal every time you set out to direct a film is to transport the audience, to make them forget all the issues that they're dealing with, transport them to a world that doesn't feel artificial. And that takes a lot of work. That takes collaborators like all of my uh, collaborators, Masa, cinematographer, Stefania, designer, Kasha, and then all the actors so that nobody, you, you don't see the scenes in anybody's work so that we're immersing people in a world and it's unquestionable. And you don't see how clever we are with the camera. You don't see how clever we are with costumes or production design and it all is of a piece. And that takes very confident collaborators so that their work isn't being shown and being, uh, certainly with period pictures. So the goal is always to immerse the audience in, uh, in uh, landscape, uh, sound, light, um, score, and really make it an immersive experience. And I think you really can't tell how good a film is for many years. So often people will see a film and they'll be at film festivals and they have to have a hot take, right? And it can become very divisive. I would say that um, most of my favorite films, the ones that I go back to over and over, are something that reveal something upon every viewing. And uh, whether it's Friedkin or Kubrick, uh, certain Eastwood films or Kurosawa or um, I watch a lot of world uh cinema, uh, Michael Haneke, you, you, every time you visit one of their films, uh, Melville, you always see something different and it's rich. Tough to get that in one viewing, tough to write film criticism about it, tough for an audience to understand that because you're always going to miss something. And now a lot of people watch movies like this. Right. Scrolling through their iPhones, half paying attention. So you, yeah. you, you invariably are going to miss something. The two screen experience, right? So I, so I hope that uh, people are immersed in it. Will and certainly this film see it uh, more than once, I think, and um, understand that you know our goal always is to just completely immerse the viewer into a world that we create, and hopefully seamlessly. And Scott and I have the most intentional conversations of anyone I work with about the first viewing. And then speaking of obsession, like when I like something, I tend to watch it multiple times. So I'm very aware of, well, what does someone get from the second viewing? And then maybe there's even a third. What do they get from the third? So Scott and I will very intentionally sit down and discuss that about how to continue uh, that enjoyment, and as you said, so richly layered, that you can discover more in a, in a second viewing. And we applied that um, to Out of the Furnace into Hostiles. But as you'll know, having seen it, it's exceptionally relevant to Pale Blue Eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They all are linked to me. These characters and these stories, they're all linked. I didn't think about that as intention when I was watching it, but upon rewatching, knowing I was going to speak to the both of you, 
I was really struck by that. It, I was like, wow, this is a, this is like its own little anthology set in different times and places and completely different characters. But there is that through line. Christian, what is it that keeps you engaged in your work now that you're kind of mid-age? Yeah, I, I uh, love it and I hate it. And I think that's not a bad thing. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But it is something that undeniably... I attempt to step away from often, and and as Scott knows, you know, I I like not to work if I can as much as possible, and I like to wait for something that I cannot throw away, and that's a very fortunate place, and I'm incredibly grateful to be in that place, and I may not be in that place forever, um, but uh, but right now I am, and so I um, I I I, I want to make sure that uh, anything I do. Um, and that obsession again that I can become obsessive about and immersed in, and I do enjoy that greatly. There's not much in life um, that we can do as a shared experience where you get to be that obsessive. Um, you know, we have uh, private relationships where obviously that uh, is hopefully uh, present for people. Um, we have kind of collective experiences, whether it be sort of a, you know, dancing or whether it be watching sports events where there's a unity, you know, with other people that uh, is um, uh, really gratifying and a real adrenaline rush. Um, and I get that equally from um, being pointed in the same direction and looking at the same, um, you know, horizon with uh, people I'm working with on films. And and that's very that's very uh, addictive. Um, it's also, uh, by the very nature of obsession, very draining as well. And so you do need to kind of sit and collect yourself afterwards, um, uh, as as we were talking about with the cold, etc., and, and and other um, environments. I think it's uh, very nice to be highly uncomfortable um, uh, when you work, and. Um, and uh, so I enjoy that and I'll inevitably, you know, be drawn back to it again and again. But then there's a very strong um, part of my character that wishes to have nothing to do with it anymore <laughs> and has felt that way ever since uh, uh, or not long after I began. And uh, I think that generates a great sort of internal dialogue within myself about each and every um, uh, project and uh, uh uh, hopefully I can turn that into um, something uh, worthwhile and beneficial to the people that I work with. Because you said it, Krista, you know, when you have families and, and Christian's like one of the most devoted family men I know, it better be something good, something that's going to take you away from home. Because it's not only when you're shooting, it's the amount of prep that you're doing, certainly as a filmmaker, but uh, as an actor, the amount of incredible amount of prep that Christian does. It isn't just the actual shooting. So for you, Scott, how in the writing of it, do you need to take breaks? Well, when it, when does your writing happen? Are you a morning person? Are you always thinking of story? Are you writing things down all the time? I'm actually in my writing studio at the moment. I used to have a lot of hobbies. Um, I no longer have them. I'm a working man. And uh, when I'm cutting, I'm writing, I'm thinking about films. I said to Christian recently, I said, you know, creative life is absurdly short. So I'm trying to make you know, try to tell as many stories as I can with Christian and, and my kind of core group of actors, uh, hopefully never making the same film twice because that always 
pushes me to take big risks. It makes you feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I can excel in a gangster genre or Western or music, you know, and it's always pushing you. And it, but it's all, of course, about character. So I'm, I, I do write quite a bit. And I would love to tell a story about a man, hopefully Christian, who has, because we all do, we all have private life, we all have a public life, and we all have a secret life. And that's what I'm thinking about these days. And I am a sloth. <laughs> Scott is a cheater. That's not an understatement when he says he writes all the time. Uh, he writes scripts quicker than I read them. <laughs> Literally. Doesn't mean they're any good. I, I, very good. And uh, I like to really dwell and sit with things. And uh, before I finish reading one of Scott's scripts, he'll be telling me about another one. Oh, I've got something else for you. Already working on. I can't tell you how many actors that, that I know in the public realm that I see, and they're like, are you only going to make movies with Christian Bale? It's a fair question. It is. It is a very fair question. The answer um, is yes, God damn it. Yes. I just I just want to know what and I don't want to pry into your private relationship at all and you're hanging but out, you but but I am gonna ask this question because I'm kind of curious. What is one and I'm looking at sunshine, you know, Christian's backlit by the gorgeous LA light, and I'm looking at this beautiful greenery. So mm. in my mind, I'm imagining that you to as as just non-working friends get to pe- spend a lot of time outside is that true is that is that a instinctive reaction like i feel like you get to hang out outside a lot yeah i certainly get to um i i do take a lot of long walks each day a lot which is when i'm writing thinking walking my dogs just walking my neighbor and we live fairly close to one actually very close to one another um uh, christian are you outside much but listen, it's different for Christian to be outside, Krista. I can walk outside and nobody right, gives a shit. Right, you can't, right. You know, Fair. Christian walks outside of his house and he's got paparazzi like, you know. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate, more fortunate than many people that way. Yeah, no, I go stir crazy if I don't get outside. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I am asking everyone on the podcast this series. I always have one question I ask everybody. And this is about just a small win. Like we're all in, you know, we all try and stay in gratitude. And what is a small win you've had today? For me, it's getting the two of you on this podcast because this was well worth the wait. I made a great cup of coffee today. Uh, That was a little small win. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Mine was uh, voting with my daughter for the first time. And understanding that's a great one. That democracy is on the ballot and she is uh, very passionate and we've left uh, our children with quite a mess, but my hope is that she's ready to to take it on. So for the first time, sitting down, both of us filling out our ballots and really talking in depth about about each issue, uh, each candidate, uh, as much as we know, and and what the future holds. So that's both a win, and and um, uh, hopefully she's continues to be an active citizen. And 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 mine. Actually, specifically, I got two today. Uh, one is the gratification as a as a dad in a situation that I observed my daughter in, where she proved herself to have real grit. It was fantastic. Uh, I want to hear. see that today, and uh, and then also uh, relevant to Scott and myself, and because of our projects, and because of filming in Braddock. Um, 
being able to reach out on this very particular day uh, to John Fetterman. And um, who's in our film, by the way, to uh, be able to know someone who is um, hopefully uh, going to be able to bring sincere dignity and soul uh, to the country. Well, there you go. That's two. I'm talking as though I'm going to keep listing them. Please, That's I'm not going to stop you. We all need gratitude. I'm not going to stop I, you. You know, I also have to say the coffee is a good one. Absolutely. Coffee with uh, the simple pleasures. My, my my wife and my dog Mo. Yeah. Mm, I just discovered when I was in London for, for two weeks for the London Film Festival, a flat white. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I was like, uh, where have I been? Clearly nowhere. It's a good thing, isn't it? It's yeah. amazing. And so oh. I like I was there for long enough that I kept going back to this lovely little uh, coffee shop in Kensington. There's always a line. And I and not now I know why, but I would go back and I try a flat white with the oat milk and then the coconut milk. It's so Ooh. good. But anyway. Never had a coconut milk. I like um coffee that's so strong that you have to recover from it. <laughs> I call that jet fuel and I love it as well. Yes. Oh, Krista, so great to see you. It's so great to see the two of you. Thank you so much. I love your work individually. I love it together. Uh, please don't stop. And and thank you for at least bringing this uh, one person a lot of joy and always a lot to think about whenever I sit in the cinema and, wa- and watch these films, whether it is sometimes, you know, in my own home or in a theater. Appreciate it a lot. Thank, thank you. you very much, Krista. The Pale Blue Eye is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueue.com. Thank you.